we have this idea and we have this sort of like binary thing that goes yeah. all the way back to Descartes about like mind and body right. and it's not it's, as if they're two separate entities. it's the same thing yeah. and psychological processes come out of biological processes your mind is in your brain mm-hmm. so in my opinion it's not you know it should not be dismissive right it should be part of a you know, comprehensive care program to say, well, you are flaring and this may be because of your anxiety. Why don't we treat your anxiety and see if you get better? It doesn't mean that your symptoms are not real. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the reason why we have some psych drugs that are used to treat pain disorders. Well, we don't know 100%, but they seem to work for people. Right, and we only have so many drugs that work on the nervous system, so we kind of have to, you know. We try everything. (laughs) Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Each person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is almost never not annoying. This week's episode is part two of my conversation with Sirena, my guest from episode three. We talk about the link between stress and biology, epigenetics, the limits of scientific knowledge and science communication, and the indelicate habit so many doctors have of telling patients their mysterious symptoms are all in their head. After a successful dissertation defense, Sirena has officially achieved PhD status, which of course deserves a thousand congratulations. If you haven't already, you can go back and listen to part one of our conversation in which she talks about the long road it took her to get here and today's bonus episode in which she tells the story of the rare spinal cord stroke she experienced two years ago and the perils of not taking her serious symptoms seriously. A PhD is a pretty impressive achievement in and of itself, but with the health challenges she's faced along the way, including bipolar disorder and lupus on top of that spinal stroke, this PhD was earned with the figurative and sometimes literal equivalent of walking to school uphill both ways in the snow. So congratulations, Irina. You truly deserve it. That dissertation she defended last week was on her research into inflammatory markers in adults who experience early life stress. Stress and how it relates to our physical health is something that gets a lot of talk, but our scientific understanding of the link between the two is still in its infancy. Very often, especially for women, very real health problems are blamed on stress or anxiety. We're told this by our doctors, by the people in our lives, and even by ourselves. 
While it does seem that there is some relation between psychological stress and physical symptoms, the explanation that those symptoms are a mere manifestation of psychology is an inaccurate oversimplification. What little we do know doesn't support that idea. What little we do know is that things are nowhere near that simple. Not only is it very often an incorrect assertion, it effectively places blame on the patient for not doing a better job of managing their stress or coping with past trauma. The implication is that we are simply not trying hard enough. We're told to reduce stress, it'll make us feel better. But as I and so many of my listeners can tell you, eliminating stress is not only impractical and often impossible, it's also pretty ineffective. It's also pretty irresponsible for doctors to conclude that a patient's symptoms are psychological in origin and eschew all future responsibility for treating and diagnosing them. The presence of a psychiatric disorder, even if one does exist, does not necessarily rule out a physical cause for some of the symptoms, and sometimes psych symptoms are actually symptoms of an underlying biological process. I recently read Susanna Cahalan's memoir, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness, which is about the onset and diagnosis of a rare autoimmune disease that attacked her brain. It first presented with largely psychiatric symptoms, including mania and psychosis. Her family insisted that she stay on the epilepsy ward at NYU until they were able to diagnose her rare disorder, in spite of being repeatedly pressured by doctors to admit her to a psychiatric ward. If she hadn't gotten the proper treatment, it's likely she would have died or spent the rest of her life institutionalized until her diagnosis, which comes in the last chapters. Throughout the book was a chillingly familiar refrain from doctors who had reached the limit of their knowledge, that this was a psychiatric illness brought on by stress. Denying a patient the reality of their physical experience can be very detrimental, especially for patients with difficult to diagnose conditions that have already been dismissed and passed off more times than they can count. If they weren't already dealing with trauma, trying to find answers and being denied and gaslighted repeatedly can be traumatizing enough. There's another fatal flaw in medical doctors blaming symptoms on psychological issues. As Serena pointed out in part one of our conversation from episode 13, access to psychiatric care is inconsistent and inaccessible for large portions of the population. Insurance coverage for such services is even spottier. Psychiatric care and therapy can be helpful for many patients as part of a team approach, but dumping patients into the world of mental health care without concurrently supporting them medically can be even more damaging. This isn't to say that our mental state has no impact on our physical health. As Sirena and I both talk about in this episode, we see a very clear correlation in our own bodies between the two. But it so clearly is not the cause of the symptoms that we experience. And that's where so many practitioners go wrong. They blame stress or trauma for symptoms that they simply don't understand and can't diagnose. Sure, early life stress and stress in our current lives seems to contribute to many chronic conditions. But in spite of a growing body of research in this area, we still don't really know exactly how or why. There's plenty of people who will point to a single study or two and say, see, this is how it works. But that's simply not how science works. It's going to take us a while to figure this out, if we ever figure it out at all. As I mentioned in episode 11 with Dr. Jill, with the more we learn, we know more and more about less and less. 
The truth is we have no idea what's going on. It's incredibly difficult to figure out how or why we get sick. Epidemiologists have been trying to figure this out for hundreds of years, but it's really complicated. As we touch on in the interview, our health seems to be some complicated combination of genetic factors and our environment and what goes on in our lives. Because we can't study these factors in isolation, it's quite difficult to point to any one factor as the source of a given illness. This is the same reason that proving a causal link between poor health outcomes and environmental exposures to specific chemicals has been so difficult. I can recommend the book Tom's River, A Story of Science and Salvation by Dan Fagan if you're interested in getting a more thorough understanding of this and where it fits into epidemiology. It's about toxic dumping in my home state of New Jersey, cancer clusters, and the challenge of proving a definitive link for the sake of compensation and criminal prosecution. I didn't grow up in Tom's River, but my hometown was also affected by toxic dumping, and you can even see a documentary about it on HBO On Demand and HBO Go called Man v. Ford. If you're paying attention to the leaded water crisis happening in Flint, Michigan right now, this is something that the people of Flint will be dealing with for decades to come. Toxic exposures like these exist at the intersection of health and disability and class and race and the criminal justice system and are something that I hope to cover much more of on the show in the future. Speaking of science and how we learn the things that we do know, Sirena does talk a bit about animal testing in this episode, which I know can be upsetting for many people. We don't go into any graphic detail, but I'll let Sirena explain a bit about that now. I'm sorry to people who don't feel comfortable with animal studies. I'm going to preface that um, before I talk about it. But, uh, you know... We would know nothing if not for those. We would know. We really would not know very much of anything at all. If you take any kind of drug, there were animals involved. And scientists, 99.9% .9 of scientists respect the... I'm not going to say 100% respect the animals that they work with and you are actually required to justify the number of animals that you use you can't just be like oh I want to use 20 now you have to explain why you're using the number that you're using so it's not just willy-nilly thing and I know people aren't comfortable with it but until we develop a better model um, for all sorts of you know testing um, and experimentation that's what we've got as always, I've included links in the show notes to learn more about some of the stuff we talk about in this episode, including the chapter Sirena mentions she published on the immune consequences of early life stress. I'll also link to the episode of On Being with Rachel Yehuda, one of the researchers who has spent a large portion of her career studying post-traumatic stress in Holocaust survivors, and she talks about trauma and resilience across generations. We touch on this research briefly in my conversation with Sirena. If you'd like to congratulate Sirena on her PhD or have questions about her research, you can find her on Twitter at CGNPVD. You can find more from In Sickness and In Health at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. You can email me at InSicknessPod at gmail.com. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us on iTunes. It will help other people find the show. Um, our bodies don't really know the difference between different types of stressors. It's right. all the same thing. 
in terms of we, we have one physiological stress response system and that's it. Uh, so, you know, whether it's physical stress or psychological stress, a lot of the, the, the mechanisms are really the same. So if we, you know, want to talk about stress, I, I don't really think it's necessary to separate the two. Right. So there's a, a number of different systems involved. The, the, the one that probably most people would be familiar with is the neuroendocrine system. So, um, you know, the interaction between the nervous system and the endocrine system. Which is your hormones. Your hormones. Thank you. Hormones. So what we generally think of. So hormones is like a general term, but what right. we think of as hormones, which is like cortisol and um, estrogen and testosterone, all those sorts of things. So the sort of like canonical part of the neuroendocrine system is the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. So it's a loop, basically. And what happens is when you're exposed to a stressor, the hypothalamus, which is a part of the brain, produces a, it's sort of like a, it's not a precursor, it's sort of like a signaling. So it's dialing the phone. Basically. It's dialing the phone, thank you. But it's basically, it places a phone call to the pituitary gland, like, hey, you need to send some signals to the adrenal gland, because we're under stress, we need to be cranking up this cortisol so the body can kind of get in position to, you know, respond appropriately. So, the pituitary sends signals to the adrenal gland, which it sits, like, on top of your kidneys, and it starts cranking out cortisol, which people know as the stress hormone, Right. So generally, healthy system, when you're under stress, cortisol goes up. When the stress abates, cortisol goes down. And so when we look at um, sort of more pathological states, people who are under constant stress, you sort of have this bifurcation that happens. So sometimes when people are under constant stress, their cortisol is always high and they can no longer respond to it. So those are like hyporesponders. And then you have people who just bottom out, like they no longer can produce cortisol in response to stress. So it's just a flat line. And you can see these patterns in all different sort of disease groups. I mean, if you talk about depression, it's like an ongoing like discussion in the field, like what does cortisol look like, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, basically, if you aren't producing cortisol in the normal manner, something's wrong with your stress response system. Now, where the immune system comes in is, you know, a lot of people think of the immune system just as all of the cells that respond to, you know, um, like biological invaders, like worms and viruses and bacteria and stuff. But the immune system also has other functions. It almost functions like another hormonal system. So there are interactions between like the brain and the immune system and also the endocrine system. All this stuff all links together. If you see like the diagrams, they're ridiculously complicated. But um, basically... Um, and also, like, we know some of it, but we don't, like, fully understand exactly how they're related either. Oh, absolutely not. We're, we're still battling all the time, and that's what happens in papers. You say, oh, this person's wrong, and we're right, and they say, oh, they're wrong, and these... Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah, I, 
it's been amazing to me to learn just how much opinion is involved in oh, like totally, medical science. It's totally opinion. You, I mean, that's why you have like discussions where you talk about what we found and what other people found and what we think is right and what they did is wrong and what we think is they did was right. And anyway, so the immune system also responds to stress and sort of the really like where people started observing this. Um, in animal models is what you call like, well, I think humans too, but what we call sickness behavior. So what happens to people when they get infections or they get sick? You know, you slow down. Sometimes, you, you know, you withdraw. You get really tired. People have like, you know, they have um, depressive-like mood. Um, you know, there's a lot of behaviors that happen when people get sick that are comparable to when people get depressed. So a lot of times they model depression, uh, immune-mediated, immune-mediated, meaning depression caused by the immune system. In animals, they get them sick. <laughs> um, they've more recently started doing stuff where they stress animals out psychologically. But in the beginning, they got animals sick to look at this. You have a bunch of different types of cells in your immune system. And... You know, we don't have separate systems in our bodies. So a lot of cells have receptors to other, um, what we would call hormones and other transmitters from other systems. And so the immune system, the cells in the immune system aren't really any different. But they, they produce their own signaling molecules, which people who have, you know, immune disorders probably, you know, some will be uh, familiar with the biggest group of which are the cytokines. Um, the biggest group of the cytokines being the interleukins. So um, interleukins are signaling molecules produced by immune cells that either initiate inflammation process, initiate the you know cellular attack of invaders or tissues, damaged tissues, or actually are anti-inflammatory, which calm down inflammatory processes. And um, what people have found is that these same immune transmitters are produced in response to psychological stressors, as well as, you know, biological, like what we call biological, like, um, you know, by bacterial infections and stuff. So, you know, to take a page from one of the papers that I've published, if you make people give, like, a public speaking task and do some math, you know, they increase their production of interleukin-6, which is inflammatory cytokine. And that, you know, you're like, you think about it, you're like, that's weird. You know, like, I didn't think the immune system did stuff like that. Well, it does. It responds to psychological stressors as well. And that's kind of why I say, like, in a way, it doesn't really matter what the stressor is. Right. Stress is stress. So getting to more like a disease standpoint, when you look at people who have depression, in general, you see higher levels of inflammation, right? And when you sort of, I'm thinking of a study. So there was this really cool study that, that a group did uh, like a, a year or two ago. They actually gave a group of patients with depression a tannercept. Uh, just a note, Serena let me know after our conversation that she was incorrect about this. It was not Etanercept. It was actually Infliximab, which is another anti-tumor necrosis factor medication more commonly known as Remicade. It is often used to treat autoimmune diseases. 
So they gave this group, and there was actually a subset of people with depression who responded to it. Their symptoms subsided. And that was like, you know, human proof. You know, we've got stuff in animals, but that was like human proof that there is a real inflammatory component to depression. And what was cool about it is it was a subset of people. It wasn't everybody, which feeds into my theory and it's not really a theory. I think it's more of a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis, right? Because we're being scientific. These are to my hypothesis that, you know, with a lot of these terms, we're not really describing uh, monolithic disorders. I right. think in time we're going to sort out who has what and the best way to treat each person. Right. And even if they do have the same thing, like the genetic differences, like yeah, other genetic differences can feed right. into that. Recently, the, the president of the National Organization for Rare Disorders called NORD, mm-hmm. um, he said something to the effect of like, in the future, every disease will be a rare disease. Um, yeah, absolutely. We all have different diseases. Exactly. So, you know, the immune system, it, it does more than respond to illness. So when you're looking at um, people with uh, autoimmune illnesses, I don't know enough. I don't know as much about auto-inflammatory illnesses, sorry. But <laughs> um, when you look at people with autoimmune illnesses, uh, there are some very interesting um, findings as well, um, one of which is that... Uh, you know, the rate of um, mental illness is higher in people with autoimmune illness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people might think, oh, it's because of the, you know, toll, the psychological toll. Of, right. Which certainly does not help. It doesn't help, right. Yeah. But there's also biological underpinnings, you know, that's uh, increased inflammation really uh, contributes a lot to depression. You know, there's signs all, you know, we can see it. Um, what I'll call the peripheral system, where if you, you know, take blood from people, you look for these inflammatory markers, they're higher in general in people with depression, uh, schizophrenia, a number of other illnesses. But also when you look at, they've done post-mortem studies, mostly with suicide, sorry, but, you know, we can't cut people's brains out, but we can do autopsies. We need to figure out how to get, like, some sort of dipstick thing where we can just check your brain levels at any time. If you could do that, you'd, like, well, I mean, there's, like, you can do, like, cerebrospinal fluid, but it's not awesome, and it's also high risk. But, um, you know, they they do what you call staining, where you use compounds that have, like, what's the right word? They have, like, little color molecules attached. And they can attach to, um, let's say, interleukins in the brain and say, where are they? And we can see, like, in the brains of these people who have had, you know, a history of depression and died by suicide, they have more inflammation in their brains than people who didn't. And there's so much stuff we can do with animals. When you stress out animals and you, you know, do dissections and look at their brains, you can see, if you look for immune cells with staining, you can see like increased immune cells in areas that are associated with things like depression. Um, now, we haven't really done any postmortems. I don't think there's any postmortems of, uh, of people with autoimmune illness, but um, there's this really awesome study that came out of one of the Scandinavian countries, don't kill me, I don't know which one it is, I think maybe Sweden. <laughs> but, you know, in a lot of those countries... You know, I have plenty of Swedish and Norwegian listeners, they might yeah, get mad at you. I hope not, I know, <laughs> but I know I can be safe in that um, they, a lot of these countries have, you know, really complete databases on their uh, citizens. Mm-hmm. 
And so like a lot of these really awesome, massive epidemiological large-scale studies come out of those countries because they've got that access and it's complete because they have, you know, these universal healthcare systems. Um, so there was a study that came out of one of the Scandinavian countries on um, autoimmune illness and mental illness. And it was, I mean, it was amazing, the percentage of people. And they actually broke out by illness. And it was, it actually, you know, it's really convincing because you actually look at people um, and some of them actually developed autoimmune illness after mental illness. So someone like me. And that brings up other questions. You know, it's like, is there an underlying inflammatory process? Right. And was the mental illness like the first presentation? The, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and there's a lot of questions that really can be asked with mental illness and autoimmune disorders that can even filter down to mental illness without autoimmune disorders. It's like you have these people um, with these, you know, heightened inflammatory processes, but not all the time. You know, you're not always flaring. So, um, suffice it to say, you know, you're... Your body doesn't really care where the stress comes from. Most of the stress we experience is psychological stress. Really, our modern world has hijacked our innate stress system because we were really built to, you know, survive infections and run away from lions. Um, you know, now we have feces to write and families to see at Christmas. And people to fight with on Twitter. <laughs> and people to fight with on Twitter. And so our bodies are like, hey, it's all the same to me. And... Um, so you have all of these different cascade, chemical cascades happening in your body that you don't know about. And um, so when you have an autoimmune illness, you're sort of like got this underlying thing going on all the time that's really it's dysfunctional. You know, your hormonal system's dysfunctional, your immune system's dysfunctional, everything, because everything's connected, right? Right. And... Um, so you layer that on top with, you know, everyday stuff. And we're just, you know, it's amazing that we can do what we can do. Let's put it that way. Um, so that being said, more specifically what I do. So um, I am interested particularly in early life stress, so childhood stress, and how that is associated with um, mental and physical illness in adulthood. So, um, lots of evidence, people who have childhood stress have higher rate of illness, diseases, all kinds. Uh, mental illness, physical illness, autoimmune, all that stuff. Right. And I think it's important to just pause and say, like, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the cause of the illness. Thank you. Um, it's not. It's not. It's so much more complex than that. It's right. not the cause. It doesn't mean that you're going to be sick forever. It doesn't mean that your illness came from childhood stress if you have it. But when it, we say... It seems to be a contributing factor. It seems to be a contributing factor and when we're looking at large populations. We're not looking at individuals, large populations. Um, and so the corollary to that is that when you look at people who have a history of early life stress without illness, they have um, higher rates of inflammation as well, like we talked about before. So even when they're not sick, even when they don't have an illness, they have higher rates of inflammation. Um, 
so, you know, the question is, how exactly does early life stress contribute to um, this inflammation that can result in, you know, mental illness, physical illness in adulthood? So there are studies in animals that have been done for a long period, you know, a long time now with um, rats and mice, and uh, there's even some in monkeys, but um, there's different stress models that are used to simulate things that happen to people in childhood, you know, neglect, physical abuse, um, bullying, all those sorts of things. And um, you definitely see, one, increased inflammation, like if you look actually at the brain and other body tissues, and um, if you even just look for markers in the blood, they have higher rates of inflammation, and they also, the animals tend to have more, let's say, illness analogs. So you can't say, like, this, this rat has lupus, you know, it's a lupus model, like, mm -hmm. of illness. You know, like people saying a similar sort of thing. Sort of like the what I am trying to figure out is if we have people with a history of early life stress, can we sort of look at precursors to things? So um, people who have what you call subclinical inflammation. So inflammation that's higher than general public, but not enough to be associated with an illness, mm -hmm. you know? And people who report health symptoms that are, again, subclinical or subsyndromal, meaning they're not enough to say you have an illness or a syndrome or anything, but enough to, that they are noticeable, that they can affect you in some way. Um, can we see those coming, right? Are they associated with early life stress? And if so, how? Is it, I mean, there's some things we can't do. Like, I'm not, I haven't followed these people since childhood, so I can only go on their self-report. I haven't done a whole series of blood tests. I can only go on one. But what I can do is create a statistical model that can try and uh, determine whether or not people who have a history of early life stress and higher inflammation are more likely to report more symptoms, right? And that kind of starts to lead you down this path where can we include this in a clinical picture, right, as a preventative model? So instead of waiting for people to get sick, can we do a history, a medical history, clinical history, and you say, oh, yes, I have a history of child abuse, then that might tip someone off and say, well, let's do an inflammatory panel. And if those two come back, maybe you can start having this person think about ways they can look out for health symptoms, keep themselves healthier. That's my dream thing, but um, that's kind of what I am studying. So um, generally when we talk in the field about early life stress, the vast majority of the work has been done in terms of child maltreatment, so abuse and neglect. So I'm thinking of one of my scales, and it's broken down into like emotional abuse, emotional neglect, physical abuse, physical neglect, sexual abuse. Um, I think that might be it. I think that might be the ones they use for the scale, but there's different scales. Um, but I wanted to branch out to other types of things that could be considered stressful in childhood, but not necessarily like as heavy mm -hmm. as child maltreatment. So um, I was, you know, one of the things I looked at too is what we call parental bonding. 
so sort of the match between the parent and the child. You know, as some people can, you know, imagine if you and your parent don't necessarily sync up, I guess. I don't know the best way to say that. But, um, you know, some of the... It's just not a good match. (laughs) Not a good match. And it's not necessarily that they were abusive, but maybe they were too controlling Uh or too lax Uh or... um, they're sort of like four quadrants, and forgive me, I can't remember what they are, and I need to study this before my defense, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there's um, like sort of one type of parent that's ideal, and there's other type of parents that aren't ideal, and, you know, it can be like a parent that's too aggressive, a parent that's too lax, too controlling, too loose, um, all those sorts of things. So those sorts of situations are, can be stressful for a child. Um, because you don't really know what you're supposed to be doing. Right. You don't really know how to deal with this parent. So it's a different kind of stressor, but it's still stressful. And uh, another thing that I looked at is this sort of what we call like a global stress model, where you sort of roll all these things together, because a lot of the scales don't pick up all these bits and pieces that are stressful for children. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they are important, like bullying. You know, there aren't really any people doing bullying work in this. But as we may know, bullying is a very severe problem. And childhood stress is childhood stress. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, you don't have to be beaten by your parents to have significant stress in childhood. So I wanted to create a more global picture of what we think of as childhood stress and see if all these different types of stressors sort of have different effects, same effect if, you know, there's, say, something like parental bonding, which is kind of a quote-unquote weaker stressor, um, doesn't have the same effect. And it, you know, not to show my hand, but um, it ties back to what I said before, stress is stress. (laughs) We think of some stressors as more significant than others, but stress is stress, and it's really more a matter of your physiological response to it, more so than the type Right. And different people, I'm sure, have different physiological responses. Exactly. And this is kind of where we start getting into some people, you know, the the field of resilience study Mm -hmm. is getting much larger. It's sort of the flip side of, you know, studying pathological stress. And that, you know, you look at some of these people and by all, you know, markers in the literature, they should be a pile of mush somewhere. But they're like, you know, they're like in grad school, they're in med school, they're like, you know, what society would consider to be kicking ass. And they have these horrible histories. And clearly, and this is for all your listeners out there, nothing is definitive. You know, there's so many more things that contribute. I mean, even when we talk about Genetics. Some people are genetically more resilient. Some people have a stress response that is more um, heightened than other people. Yeah, and there's actually been some interesting uh, research done into uh, passing on those genetic resilience or, or not, mm-hmm. um, specifically mm-hmm. in descendants of uh, Holocaust survivors. Yeah, yeah. Which is really interesting. I don't think they, like, know anything yet. Yeah, the work is interesting at the very, very least. It's very interesting stuff, and I think some of that started out... A group of studies that was done in people who were descendants of, I think it was a Scandinavian country, again, (laughs) (laughs) 
descendants of people who had undergone famine and hadn't undergone famine. And, you know, even two generations away from people who had undergone famine, you saw, and at this time, I think it was just behavioral and physical stuff they were looking at, like obesity and things like that. But I think maybe they're doing epigenetics now. Epigenetics is, you know, genetics is DNA, the genes. Epigenetics is sort of modification of those genes. So, um... And like how the environment can interact with that exactly. and, and cause the genes to either express themselves or, or not express them. That's exactly the whole gist of epigenetics. So you have this process called methylation and um, it attaches these small chemical groups to parts of the DNA and methylation keeps them from being expressed and then other parts are expressed. And so the... The real tricky question I think people are trying to answer is how are these epigenetic changes, you know, passed down? Because mm-hmm. it kind of doesn't make sense. And that's kind of, I think, where some of this Holocaust stuff is starting to come in. And right. you'll see other things, too, I think, in the future. People who grow up in violent urban environments and things mm-hmm. like that. I think you'll see a lot I think, of stuff. Um, a lot of the children that survived Hurricane Katrina, like there's, exactly. there's a lot of researchers following them as yeah, well. Yeah, I think we'll see. And it'll be cool to see. It's so hard to say these sorts of things. It's like... Yeah. <laughs> you well, know, you're, you're studying people who who have undergone like unimaginable trauma. Trauma, yeah. yeah. But you know, like I think, like when we were recruiting people for these group of studies in our lab, it's like, oh, we got someone else who has early life stress, and it's like, this sucks for them, <laughs> <laughs> for my study because they're so hard to get. Yeah. Um, it's uh. It's hard to get people who have a history of early life stress, particularly like maltreatment, Mm -hmm. and are healthy. Right. Very hard to get. And it's also, I mean, you know, these are issues that are heavily stigmatized, so it's hard to get people to talk about it. And, you know, we know that when someone is undergoing trauma, a lot of times their brain isn't actually recording it, you know, so self-reporting that sort of thing can be a little tricky. Self-report is extremely, extremely tricky, and I think that's why... Um, you know, longitudinal studies following people for extended periods of time would be really valuable. Um, like you say, they're doing with the Hurricane Katrina. I have to look into that. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I don't know if they're doing any actual biological studies. I, would be, I wonder, I mean, because that would be it. Oh, that would be interesting, but I bet you it would be a difficult population to round up. Yeah, definitely. Um, but suffice it to say, I, I think longitudinal studies looking at kids from the beginning there are studies out there that are longitudinal I remember having to read some of them and they're very fascinating you have a subset of people who develop problems and a subset of people who don't and there's people who are sort of in the middle where they have some things but not that much um but I think it's, you know, an issue that's really coming to the forefront now. I think I've been seeing more and more stuff in the lay press mm-hmm. about, you know, childhood uh, environment and adult health. And people are becoming really interested in it as a topic. And um, I think, you know, it's because we're finally acknowledging that everything we come into contact with affects us. Right. And that. You know, genes are not the be-all and end-all of health or illness. And I would argue that they are important, but not super important, unless you're talking about, you know, really clear, like, autosomal disorders and things like that. 
But when you're talking about more complex issues like auto, you know, general, what we know, autoimmune illnesses, even a lot of rare disorders. I mean, I was reading a study, I mean, earlier today where they were actually finding that a lot of diseases that we think are associated with a particular gene, when you really look at large population databases, aren't necessarily associated with right. those illnesses. They're, it's not so clear. Right. It might actually be like a combination of several genes or or something else that I think, you know, when we embarked on the Human Genome Project, everyone thought that we would be able to identify the gene for things. Like there would be a gene that caused heart disease and there would be a gene that caused this kind of cancer and that kind of cancer. Like that's not necessarily true. You know, like a lot of times it's like, okay, so you have a mutation in this gene, but that doesn't necessarily actually mean anything. It could mean that you have a susceptibility to develop this. Right. Uh, It could mean nothing. We don't know. And how does that interact with like the other genes that you have right how does it interact with your childhood history how does it interact with your adult history how does it interact with you eat drink how much you sleep how much you chemicals that you might have been exposed exposed to to, um you know the number of different uh regions of the country of the world that you've lived in i mean I, i remember my my pi principal investigator was telling me you know when they started out one of the things they were they were doing is they were actually infusing people with these um what they call endotoxins which is sort of the in certain bacteria it's the part of the cell membrane that gets you sick like your body recognizes this particular pattern and says oh this is bacteria let's go immune system so they you know have this little thing and when you infuse into people they get sick what they found though is they had a subset of the people in the study who didn't get sick and you know when they talked to these people like you know trying to get an idea why why they didn't get sick because everybody else got sick they found that these were people you know they were graduate students from developing countries Mm. and they had been exposed to a lot of different types of bacterial illnesses. Mm -hmm. So when you infuse this endotoxin, their body, like, didn't mount a response because it was like, oh, yeah, we've seen this one before. Oh, another one of those. So that goes back to, like, the hygiene hypothesis, right? Hygiene hypothesis is amazing. It's awesome. I love it. It's not 100% true, but, you know, it's an awesome idea because it's kind of like what I said before, like, our body doesn't care. You know, stress is stress. And, you know, our body is kind of like primed every once in a while to to have to do something with the immune system. Mm -hmm. And that's where the hygiene hypothesis comes in. It's like, well, we aren't getting enough of this biological stuff, so maybe let's hook on to some of this psych stuff. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so they found that these people didn't respond. And they said, well, what is it? They had been exposed to all this stuff. And, you know, maybe we, we are too clean and maybe that's why some of us are so depressed. We have a genetic susceptibility and we aren't getting that environmental exposure that would protect us, mm-hmm. right? Or auto, you can stick in a disease, whatever. You know, they're finding, like, immune systems involved in everything, which is why, you know, when I've started seeing these... Um, studies about how depression may be based in the immune system, I want to scream because <laughs> it's like some people, yes, but not everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, you uh, know, when it comes to science reporting and science communication, we don't do a great job of that. We really don't. Um, you but know, it, you if know, you 
are able to read and interpret a study and then you read an article about that study, you will usually, like, there will be two different conclusions because the people that are doing science reporting don't necessarily have the training to understand the science. Exactly. You're absolutely right. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where you, it would be great if we could get more scientists into it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more scientists going into it, but it's a tough road Yeah, to sure. switch gears like that. But, yeah, you know, I think people want a quick fix, you know. Oh, of course. Yeah. uh, Simple answers, quick fixes, all that stuff. They've used Celebrex in studies to treat depression. It's worked for some people, you know. So, obviously, there's some component that's immune-mediated, but not for everybody. Otherwise, we'd just be handing out Celebrex to everyone. (laughs) And for those who don't know, Celebrex is an anti-inflammatory. Thank you. Thank you. You've probably seen the commercials. Yeah. It's a COX-2 inhibitor. I won't go into what that is, but that's it what it just is. reduces inflammation. It's a different type from, you know, Aleve and whatnot. Right. So we have found that early life stress is associated, even in healthy people, with the sort of like what my you know, advisor would call, call like that schmutz. <laughs> that's sort of like, I don't feel that great. Um, in healthy people and um, even you you know when you look at people with illnesses like uh, I wrote this fun chapter if anyone's interested published so I can send it to you but it's about early life stress and um, pain and a lot of the pain disorders that you see are strongly associated with early life stress migraines fibromyalgia um, irritable bowel. Um, I don't know as much about autoimmune illnesses. I think some of them are, but that's not 100%. But I know definitely a lot of the more pain-associated disorders are. And it's kind of like, well, we don't really know why. Right. It could be inflammatory stuff. It can be a bunch of other things. Right. And the problem in science is that we all specialize, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody thinks it's their thing. Right. You know, oh, well, it's immune, clearly. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe not. But surprise, surprise, all of it in the same body with mm-hmm. different bodily systems that communicate and interact with each other. So Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really, the takeaway is all these systems are involved. Um, you know, the immune system, we're coming to find, is a really big player in mm-hmm. it. Not the only thing, but, you know, people may notice when they flare, they feel shitty. Mm. But inflammation can be contributing to their mood symptoms. Right. And, you know, what I've found is more so than psychiatrists, rheumatologists are really resistant to the idea of considering psychological symptoms. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they are more resistant than psychiatrists. I will say specifically. I mean, across the board. Yeah, I think, you know, and this is true on the patient end, too, is that for so long, everything was kind of blamed on the psychological symptoms. So it's really hard to take a step back and say, okay, maybe there is a piece of this that is a psychological component. Um, You know, I am very sensitive about that, too, because my whole life I was told that I was just in discomfort because I was anxious all the time. And it turned out I had all of this stuff wrong with me physically. Um, But at the same time, I have a mast cell disorder. And when I get stressed out, I wake up in the middle of the night covered in hives. You know, like there's 
there is a very clear link in my body that I, I've seen and I've noticed, and I've noticed this in my partner too. He has an autoimmune disease that like when either of us get stressed out, like all of our symptoms go downhill. So, yeah, it goes into hyperdrive, right? Yeah. And um, I know that it's very sensitive, especially for women. Yeah. That the first time, you know, when someone says, oh, psychological, you know, you feel like they're dismissing you. And I think the issue is clinical sensitivity. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a way, and this kind of, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier about like doctors be, you know, having illness experience, but there has to be a way for physicians to become more aware of that sensitivity, and but still be able to communicate that, you know, mental health is a contributing factor to illness, right. and that psychological stress can contribute to real illnesses Mm -hmm. because we have this idea and we have this sort of like binary thing that goes all the way back to Descartes about like, you know, (laughs) like mind and body. And it's not. As if they're two separate entities. It's the same thing. And psychological processes come out of biological processes. Your mind is in your brain. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, it's not, you know, it should not be dismissive. Right. It should be part of a, you know, comprehensive care program to say, well, you are flaring and this may be because of your anxiety. Why don't we treat your anxiety and see if you get better? It doesn't mean that your symptoms are not real. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the reason why we have some psych drugs that are used to treat pain disorders. Well, it's sure. a different system. Like right. a diff- well, we don't know 100%, but well, it seems to work for people. Right, and we only have so many drugs that work on the nervous system, so we right. kind of have to, you know... We try everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, sort of like a more recent case in point, I still have uh, neuropathic pain from the stroke. And um, so, you know, I've been walking around with this for almost two years, and it's like chest down on my right side is impossible. I had this brilliant like textbook neuroscience stroke. It was like right in the center of my spinal cord. So I was paralyzed on the left side and I had no damage on the right. Um, I could see this on one of my neuro tests from undergrad, I swear. <laughs> but, um, so I, you know, saw my rheumatologist in October and I said like, I can't do this. I need, you know, I'd been going, I'd been cruising for a long time just you know, mind over body or whatever. Sorry, that's a saying that we still have, right? Right. But, um, and I just said, I can't do this anymore. I'm like cranking up to sixes and sevens. This doesn't work on the pain scale. Right. And um, so he gave me, you know, I had tried gabapentin before. Gabapentin is another seizure drug. That's that's, uh, Neurontin. Neurontin, yes. And um, so... It's been used a lot for fibromyalgia as well, mm-hmm. maybe other things, but I know it's been used for that as well as, you know, neuropathic pain. And um, I said, like, please, you know, can we try this again? He was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So I, uh, he gave me double the dose that I had been trying. And I started taking it. I was like, this is working. I feel good, right? You know, like the pain is starting to go away. And what I found that was very interesting is the longer I took it the better my anxiety got yeah right and so I 
you know, it was like kind of like a dimmer switch, like my anxiety had been on high and it's not gone, but it really has turned down a lot. And I thought, this is very interesting. And I did a, you know, I did a little searching on it and, you know, I found that it had, you know, been tried before and had some minimal success in people with uh, bipolar disorder for treatment of um, comorbid anxiety, comorbid being you have two things at the same time, two diseases. So anyway, uh, I thought, well, that's really interesting. I know it's working for me. And then a week or two after that, I saw my psychiatrist and I started talking about it. She said, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's been used sometimes. And, you know, I've used it. <laughs> like, really? Why didn't you tell me this? And so here's a case where, you know, you're treating pain and it's in part, you know, you're, we, we think in part how neurontin works is by treating inflammation. And um, it's treating my anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. It's like the best thing I've ever done. You know, I've taken stuff for anxiety, and this is the best one. And so clearly, you know, we've got overlaps, right? right. We've got these different um, experiences that are rooted in the brain, and one drug works for both of them. So we need to find a way, and I, I totally wish I could still be a doctor sometimes, but we, we need to find a way to keep that from being a dismissive thing. Right. I know it's very dismissive, especially for women, and it's still used to this day, to this minute, to dismiss people's health experiences. Yeah. Illness experiences. And, and so often it's just like, I mean, I experience this over and over again, where it's not that the doctor is saying, okay, this might be a factor. Let's work on this while we also look at other stuff. It's just like, oh, this is probably what it is. Go see somebody else about this. See you never, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, go see a psychiatrist. And that's right. the end of it. That should not be the end of it. The right. psychiatrist should be part of it. Part of a team approach. Part of the team approach. You should still be trying to work up what might be going on, but a psychiatrist might be able to help you deal with the psychological problems, mm-hmm. the symptoms associated with it while you're dealing with the medical stuff. Right. If it comes out, maybe they can't find anything. You know, it doesn't mean there's nothing there, but maybe the psychiatrist can help you manage right. until at some point. Something may happen. Something may not happen. But we also know that a lot of mental illnesses have, you know, physical expression. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we kind of start getting to a point where uh, why are we separating all this stuff? Right. It makes no sense to me at all. It's, it's tough. It can be very tough going back and forth and, like, dealing with these people who have different agendas. They, too, have different agendas. You yeah. know, like, I'll have my, you know, rheumatologist say, oh, well, doesn't look like anything else, you know, lupus related is happening. I'm like, oh, but I got other shit happening too. Yeah. I, I mean, I can kind of understand, you know, you only have so much time and so much yeah. knowledge. Yeah, and I, that's actually been something that's really hard for me is that like the more that I learn about how the system works and how doctors are educated and like how the silos happen, you know, mm-hmm. where they're, they're stuck in their own specialties, like the the worse I feel because I, I get like more hopeless of like, Oh, this is never going to change. Yeah. It's really frustrating as a, as a patient to, to, to not realize that your doctors don't know everything. Right. And then once you do realize that it's kind of like, Oh shit. Oh shit. I mean, I'm, I'm in a situation where I have like multiple rare or rarely diagnosed conditions that like Mm. most people don't know anything about or know how to treat. And like, 
you know, that was, I mean, it still is scary because if I have to go to the emergency room or something like that, like I am hyper aware of the limits of most practitioners and their knowledge. Absolutely. And it's not that people are incompetent, but I mean, from the way that I was trained and I'm sure this is probably something that happens in other medical schools as well. I got two weeks of rheumatology. Yep. If you go into a field where you don't deal with rheumatology, you will really right. not learn that much more about it. That's, yeah, that's the last you'll get of it. Like with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, what I have, most physicians get maybe two slides on it in a yeah, rheumatology I know, I mean, class. I've never heard of that until <laughs> I started interacting with patients yeah. like through MedX and stuff. I had never heard of it. Yeah. And so I would go and look it up and I'm like, oh my God, look at all this stuff. Because you don't learn it. Mm-hmm. You know, you learn about lupus, you learn about RA, you learn about osteoarthritis. Right. And, and you can't it. diagnose something that you don't know exists. Exactly. And there are some physicians who really believe they have this thing in them that they do know things. And they yeah. don't. And right. I appreciate doctors who say, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I, like I said to you before we started talking, I will take somebody who admits that they're not an expert and they don't really know what's going on over somebody who claims to be an expert any day. Because it has been my experience over and over again, where these doctors that consider themselves experts, even, even if they do have the knowledge on the issue that I'm going to see them for, I'm also an expert in my body and my experience. But if they can't, if they can't, you know, see that, if they are so wrapped up in their own ego, their expertise means nothing to me. Absolutely. And I fully advocate for people, unless you are absolutely limited, say, by geography or by um, insurance plan, mm-hmm. if you run into somebody, or finances. Right. If you run into or you live somebody, in a country where it's you don't have not a, possible. Yeah, you don't, yeah. It's not possible. If you have the ability in any way, get up and leave. Mm-hmm. You don't have to see that per- because they're not giving you the care that you need. Right, and they're putting you at risk in the process. Right. Exactly. Thank you for listening to In Sickness and in Health. Check out this week's bonus episode where Sirena talks about the rare spinal stroke she experienced a couple years ago and why it's important to take her own serious symptoms seriously. You can find Sirena on Twitter at CGNPVD and more from In Sickness and in Health at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. If you can, take a few moments to rate and review us on iTunes. It will help out the show. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.